0: You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Jump into 1 Samuel chapter 2, 1 through 11. Um, Thank you, Brian, for just literally setting up my sermon. It was awesome. I was going to be reading some of those verses, and Brian, it just one thing led to another. Brian shared some of those thoughts on the exact, some of the exact ideas that I want to open up and unpack with you today. I just think that was timely, because I knew I had a variety of things I was trying to look at, and it's really encouraging to see some of the things that Brian brought out. I'm going to be trying to tease out of the passage today as we explore this beginning. The series is King David, but today we're not talking about David a whole lot. We're, we're calling this David's Prelude. A prelude is often a song you play before a service or something. A prelude is an introductory performance or such that leads up to something more important to, about to take place. And so today is a prelude. In fact, it's a song. First Samuel chapter 2 is known as Hannah's Prayer or Hannah's Song reflects also Mary's song in other places, but in the New Testament. But here at the beginning of, a, of this, we're going to look at Hannah's prayer and hope we'll, we'll get to this passage kind of towards the end of the sermon as we look at it in more detail. But it is a, it's a beautiful depiction of really the, all the themes that are the major themes in Samuel is encapsulated in this little prayer by Hannah. And it's amazing to see the focus and the emphasis and God exalting Hannah in such a way. Yeah, we talk about David and King David and Saul and all these monarchs and the powerful kingdoms, and yet Hannah here opens up this epic narrative in Samuel. And she is given prominence in such a way that a lot of what she says here predicts about what's to come. And so when we read it through once, it might be hard to grasp, but hopefully as we get there, uh, we'll be able to... To figure this out, so let's just read First Samuel two one through eleven, and uh, and then we'll get into the message. 1 Samuel chapter two verse one says, "And Hannah prayed." Some some would say even sang this prayer in a way because it's hymnic in some ways, but um, hypnotic. But it says, uh, "My heart exults in the Lord, my horn, or a way to say my strength." Like the horn on a rhinoceros is lifted high or a horn on on a deer is lifted high. Horn means strength. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like you, Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, notice the reversals, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Notice that, they're now full. The barren has borne seven, and she who has many children is now forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor, and he makes rich. He brings low, and he exalts. Do you see the reversal, the reversal, the reversal? Verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. And here's a, a famous phrase. For not by might shall a man prevail. Verse 10. And the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. For the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And then he says, as she says here. He will give strength to his king. And exalt the horn or strength of his anointed. That word anointed is Messiah. Messiah. And you're meant to to hearken forward and see the foreshadowing of what's to come. And then verse 11 says, And Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. That is, Samuel was ministering there. Let me just open in prayer. Father, we thank you. We praise you as we already have done. We sang praises to you. We are opening up your scriptures today, seeking understanding. Lord, would you transform us? Help us not to just simply increase in knowledge and have nothing changed, but Lord, that we would be changed even today. We would be formed to become more like you, and Lord, that we would, we would reflect your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your kindness, and your heart would be our heart. That is our prayer today, in Jesus' name, amen. So as we said, today's a prelude in some ways. As I said, today's a series on David, and yet David is not going to be mentioned so much in the sense that we're just looking forward to him, foreshadowing. We'll do some similar things next week. But I I feel like it's important to set some of the scene rather than literally just jumping into the Old Testament and acting like everybody's on the same page. I know today that's, that's not always the easiest thing. And we know about First Samuel. Maybe some of you know uh, the stories. Maybe some of you grew up in church and you heard all the Sunday school stories of David and Goliath, and uh, David killing the bear and the lion, and King King Saul hunting David down, uh, David and Bathsheba, and some of these storylines of David's mighty men and all of the psalms written by this great figure, David, and then Solomon, his son, to follow him. There's a kingdom, a monarchy. But what's in the making of a king? How do we get to that point? How did this kingdom come about and where do we begin and how do we set the scene? Where do we, where do we start at this point? Well, in a moment, we're going to be kind of looking at a lot of how we got here, but I, I want to kind of begin in a, in a place. You can turn there. The scripture will have it up, but I also want to set it up. It's the very end of Judges, in fact. It, it reminded me, the end of Judges reminded me of Charles Dickens A Christmas carol. Well, because, you know, fall is coming and Christmas is right around the corner. So I have to mention a Christmas thing, right? But the beginning of the Christmas carol literally starts in a very, I don't know, dark place. The very beginning of a Christmas carol is Marley was dead. (laughs) Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt about that. And then a few lines later it says, old Marley was dead as a... Many of you know, doornail, good job. Dead as a doornail, right? Sounds like the beginning of a a wonderful story, happy and ending. But a lot of those epic stories, they begin in this place with a clear statement of, of something that's gone awry, something that you need to take notice of, something that is in a situation that is dark, because something is about to change. There is a great transition about to occur. And so we actually end, or we say we could, we could begin the story of Samuel at the end of Judges. So the very last verse in Judges is a very encouraging verse. Or not. Uh, Judges 21, verse 25. Verse 21, verse 25 goes like this. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. There's no leader That is both physical and spiritual in the sense that even the people of Israel didn't even view God as their king. They didn't have a physical king and they certainly didn't view God as their king because you know why? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's an encouraging beginning, right? (laughs) Nobody is following God. Everyone's their own king. That's the message we get at the end of Judges. If you have your Bibles in front of you, you'll, you'll know that right after Judges comes Ruth and then, and then 1 Samuel. But as we see actually in this passage, we know at the end of Judges, in the Hebrew Bible, the way it was organized, it would go from Judges right into Samuel. And then we'd pick up the story of Samuel and Hannah and we'd learn about David, about a king that's coming. But here we begin in this almost dystopian way. There is, there is chaos, disorder. It's almost like the beginning of a dystopian novel or movie or some kind of like epic apocalypse end of the world kind of a thing. No one has any leader. There's destruction. And if you've been reading Judges until that point, that's exactly what it's all been about. And yet, there seems to be in the background this character that the storyline begins to focus in on. Somewhat of almost um, obscurity. Someone you wouldn't expect, and you're like, that guy's going to be the dude who's going to change it all, right? That guy right there who's like the shepherd in the field, they're going to all of a sudden become the king. And you're like, well, where does that come from? That's a biblical storyline. this kind of out of nothing. There's been a lot about, talk about like Tolkien lately with the Rings of Power and the Lord of the Rings, and I'm a big fanboy of Lord of the Rings. But in the very beginning of The Hobbit, the first line of The Hobbit begins with this very unassuming line. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit, you know? And then begins this epic three, four book narrative of all these mighty kings and battles and storylines. But the whole point of the Lord of the Rings is that the world seems to be changed by a tiny, little, unassuming hobbit. It, it's, it's those who are serving in the humility, the, it's the David as a, as a shepherd boy, the one who's overlooked, it's the Hannah, the one who is, who is uh, downcast, provoked, and mocked, she has nothing and nowhere else to go, and she goes to God, and it, it is she, it is her, she, God is the one who elevates her out of nothing, and that's the storyline that we're focusing on today. One of the most well-known verses in Samuel is when David is chosen an anointed king, What does Samuel say? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, right? But God looks on the heart. It's this reversal. We see the outside. We see the tall people, right, like me, right? (laughs) And yet it's God looking on David, the last in line, the one who didn't even show up for the anointing thing because who would want that guy? And yet David's the one choices. So that's our, that's, our set, that's our scene that we're there. Now I know some of you, like I said before, some of you grew up in church, you know the background, you know the storyline, you know how we got here. But I want to rewind really fast or skip to the very beginning. And I want to, in like five minutes, we're going to breeze from Genesis here to Ruth and Judges and Joshua. Uh, we're going to kind of skip back all the way there until we get here to um, Samuel. In Genesis We get the very beginning, humanity seeks their own kingdom. Without God, rebels and seeks to make ourselves as the maker of right and wrong. We will be in charge, sin enters the world, corruption spreads. Yet Genesis 3.15 tells us what? Hey, there's going to be a guy from the ancestor of a woman. There's from the seed of a woman, there will be a guy who will come and he will crush the head of the snake. Someone will come and save the world. There's this hint of that. Then God calls Abraham out of this obscure place called Ur. He calls him and he makes him a great promise, says to Abram at that time. I am going to make a covenant with you. I promise to bless you. I will make you a great nation. And from... will be blessed through you, Abraham. Yet Abraham can't have a family since Sarah, his wife, is barren and is in her old age. And it takes a great act of God and the faith that they hold that God says that they will have a child and the child of promise is born in her old age to Sarah. His name is Isaac. Yet God tests Abraham, tests Abraham and says to sacrifice your only son, but instead... Abraham's faith proves faithful, and God saves Isaac and provides a substitute in its place, providing a a foreshadowing of what was to come. He provides a ram that's caught in the thorns instead of Isaac, something in place of the beloved son, a substitute that's given. Hearkens forward to the cross. So from this, we see the promises again to bless Abraham, bless his family, make him a great nation, but it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time. And from his family will come a person to save the world. And we see eventually uh, Abraham's family is now. The story zooms in on this family of Abraham and follows the children. Where we get Isaac who has Jacob and Esau. God blesses Jacob and guides him. Jacob's name is changed to the name Israel, where we get Israelites, which means wrestled with God. He wrestles with God and will not let him go, and God says, I will bless you. Your name is Israel. Jacob's family includes the people in the stories in Genesis, like Joseph, who's in Egypt, and in Egypt where they live and they grow into a mighty nation, but they're suffering enslaved by the Egyptians. And then we come to the book of Exodus where God preserves and prepares Moses and calls him to lead the people out of Egypt. Let my people go. You know those stories. God redeems his people from the hand of slavery. He sets them free through the Red Sea. The redeemed people of God now are are free, but to what? (laughs) To where? And under whom? These questions come about for will they listen to Yahweh? Will they follow the Lord on high? Well, God provides for them on Mount Sinai. He provides for them a law to begin to help them to govern and to organize themselves into a great nation with God as their king. When they would follow God's law and his guidance on their physical lives, their moral and spiritual direction would be encompassed in a way that would show the world what a people of God can do wholly surrendered to God. This people, the Israelite people, would grow into a, a place, yes, of 12 tribes under the family of Israel. And he would turn them, as we see later, into a functioning nation with God as their king, as the goal, as the sole desire. And so Moses leads them to a place that eventually dies, and Joshua takes, helm, uh, takes control over the helm here, leads the people into the promised land, the land that was actually originally given to Abraham and Jacob, but now the, 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 the children of, of Israel are now the, the ancestors of those people, and they are the ones who go, come into the land. They go into the land, and they settle the land. They're supposed to enter a period of rest as they trust God to fight their battles, but instead they do the opposite. They seek to enthrone themselves again. They fall into idolatry, worshiping false gods and all sorts of things exchanging the worship of God most high for the worship of false gods in high places. And then God judges them and brings periods of times where they find themselves uh, encountering all kinds of difficulties. They're in a leaderless existence. God would not abandon them. And after Joshua's death, he continues to love them. And so in a, in a, as, a, as a disciplining a child and chastening the one he loves, he sends in the judges. So when we come to the book of Judges, and Judges is a, is a chaotic book, a crazy book, stories that are below your mind of all the difficulty and sin and corruption and evil that's going on that time, and yet God continually pursues his people, and he brings in judges like Deborah and Barak and Jephthah and Samson and Gideon, some of the most well-known ones, having measured success, and the people of God return to God, and they love him with their heart, whole heart for periods of time temporary aspects of repentance, but then they fall away in doubt and pursue the worship of all kinds of gods. They begin sacrificing their own children to false gods of Ashtoreth and Baal. Evil wax worse and worse. <laughs> and Then we come to this moment at the end of Judges 21, 25, where all of that is in our heart. The people of God are not being the light to the world that they're supposed to be, And yet what we come upon is in Judges 21, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's quite the it's quite the storyline. Except except, not everyone. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes except we get this beautiful story. Almost a As I choked earlier, a rose among thorns, almost a a light shining out of the darkness. You get this character that we're introduced to in our English Bibles here in the order of, of the books. We come to the end of Judges and we stumble upon this very short narrative, very short, four chapters, story of a widow, a woman, her name is Ruth. We're introduced to her in this order because she is taking place and living during this time of judges when everybody seems to be doing what is right in their own eyes. We see Ruth being loyal, righteous. We see Boaz being loving and kind. And we see that God has not abandoned his people and his people have not abandoned God completely. And we see this ray of hope. (laughs) And it's in this beautiful depiction of Ruth that we see that in Ruth, it's in Ruth one, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And and there was there was this man who took Moabite wives, and the name of one of them was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. And then Ruth says at the end, as as there's three widows depicted in this storyline, Orpa and Ruth and Naomi, she in this utterly amazing aspect of loyalty and faithfulness to Naomi, Ruth says, for where you will go, I will go, where you lodge, I will lodge, and where your people shall be my people, your God will be my God. You see, Ruth, Ruth isn't even an Israelite, she's a Moabite, she's outside the people of promise, and yet God welcomes her in as a foreigner, and even an outsider foreigner is one that displays some of the greatest faith. And some of the greatest loyal love that we see in all of the Old Testament. God welcomes her into the kingdom. One who is despised, who is helpless in that culture and in that time a widow had no one to help her. And so we see Boaz step into the side and and as the kinsman redeemer. And so I'm going to read this quote by Kenneth Way who helps describe some of the things that I was just saying. He says, Ruth is a story of a mirror opposite of Israel's depressing journey from triumph in Joshua to tragedy in Judges. Judges is about breaking covenant and leaving Torah law. Ruth is about keeping covenant and living Torah law. Judges emphasize canonization, sin and curse and death. Ruth emphasizes sanctification and blessing. Judges details Samson's self-interest and selfish actions. Ruth documents acts of self-sacrifice. While Judges finally depicts the lack of kingly leaders and kingship, Ruth finally depicts the line of true kingship, and his name is David. Ruth is this light in a dark world. Ruth's loyalty, when everyone was doing what they pleased, she pleases the Lord. When Boaz could have avoided his duty, he steps in and does what he's supposed to do. He loves and he provides Ruth's faithfulness to Yahweh. Boaz's love to the kinsman redeemer is a beautiful picture of redemption for a people of God who did not return the love back to God, but chose to love them still. Boaz redeems Ruth, rejuvenates Naomi, covers her shame, replaces it with glory and joy, happiness and life. And then we see at the very end of Ruth, if you look with me to there, I know uh, in messages like this, genealogies aren't our most exciting things. I know you were coming to church today, you're like, I can't wait till he reads the genealogy, okay? Um, But this is one of the most fascinating ones in all of the Bible. In fact, I shared it, some of you may already be guessing what's coming, but I I shared this I think last year, I can't remember, uh, in the story of the Bible series, we looked at this. But, it, but in the very last couple of verses of Ruth 4, Ruth chapter 4, it gives this short three-verse or four-verse genealogy. It says, now here are the generations of Perez, and then it goes down through some names, and it goes to verse 21, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz was Ruth, Ruth and Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, then verse 22, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered. Father David. The very last word in the book of Ruth is the name of the greatest king of Israel who foreshadows the greatest of all messiahs who would come, and his name is Jesus. And so, the very last name of Ruth, the very last word in Ruth is David. It's a foreshadowing of what would come. It's a beautiful depiction of God's love and kindness. Even mentions we don 't have fully time to go into it. the word Perez, and maybe some of you Bible scholars are familiar with him. Perez is a a son of a terrible, terrible story in Genesis where we read about how Judah is ultimately he has the father of Tamar and he has entered into a relationship that puts him in a challenging situation. He is ultimately abusing Tamar. She is helpless, hopeless, in a terrible situation. And yet through that incestuous relationship in many ways, we find Perez is born. Tamar is exalted and honored. And Judah repents from his sin and turns we see a beautiful depiction of forgiveness and God's mercy and exalting the humble, those like Tamar who are helpless on their own with nothing capable to do, unable to save themselves. God takes Tamar and loves her, takes her children like Perez and ties her and her children into the very line that produces Jesus Christ or or from that line comes Jesus Christ and David. So we see Perez's name just thrown in there. But if you don't know the storyline of the, again, the picture of God's grace that is poured out upon Perez, that leads to Boaz, that leads to Jesse, that leads to David, and from David's line leads all the way. Check it out in Matthew chapter 1, leads all the way to Jesus Christ, the people of, of Mary and Joseph and the Christmas story. We see God's grace poured out upon those who humble their hearts before God. Israel's in utter shambles and needing a leader, yet David's over here in a field serving in obscurity. Yet God loves him, chooses him, anoints him, makes him king. Ruth's story, the people are in a famine and difficulty, unable to save themselves, and yet she humbles herself. She is loyal, and God exalts her. The same with Tamar, the same with David, the same with story after story, and especially the same with Hannah. Now we come kind of the end of the message in some ways, but I want to come to this story of Hannah. And I just remind us of what what Brian even read earlier as he as he opened this storyline up and he already messed up all the names. So I can just say whatever I want, and everyone thinks I'm saying the, the strange names right, you know? Uh, but it's it challenging. I was thinking that. I'm like, oh boy, I'm headed into Samuel, the great historical narrative. And yet there's names and characters, and it's this, uh, it can be challenging. But this is, he actually did a fantastic job on the names. Hannah's an easy one. Peninnah's the other one. And then we have Elkanah, these three characters that are described to us. Again, in a contrast. Remember in Hannah's prayer, I kept pointing out to you the reversals. The aspect of God reversing what we see on the outside and yet God flips the narrative. The upside down kingdom of God. This is how he worked. I preached on this a few weeks ago. Jesus' kingdom that he displays to the world. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the misfits, right? Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are meek. Blessed are you hunger and thirst after righteousness for you will be filled blessed are you who are persecuted blessed are you when others revile you for my name's sake blessed are you we see that in Hannah's life she is reviled persecuted mocked and shamed openly and yet Hannah is the one that God shines his love and grace upon and Hannah is the one that God exalts to a status of honor an incredible situation. We first notice maybe from a modern reader's eyes, as I do, I read in verse 1 and 2, and I first, Elkanah had two wives, and I first off like, this is odd, right? And no, we, this passage does not support polygamy in any way. In fact, any time in the Old Testament, just as readers in our modern eyes today, as we read an ancient text, any time we read about polygamy in the Old Testament, it is always presented in a negative sense. Almost every situation you find when the person had multiple wives in situations, there's nothing but strife, hardship, and difficulty. It is not God's way. It is not God's design. And yet, despite our sin and wickedness, God works in us and through us, right? Isn't that what's amazing? He he weaves narratives and storylines despite the ways that we try to mess it up. And so we see here the two wives that cause nothing but difficulty here, Hannah being barren, Peninnah being fruitful. The outward sees Peninnah as blessed successful in that day and age would, would, be a view, would be viewed like that as such. Hannah would have been viewed as cursed. Something's wrong with her. And yet we see the humble faith of Hannah shine through and the arrogant self-reliance of Peninnah be put down. It's like the, like the classic Cinderella story from Disney, right? You gotta work those in as much as you can. The classic Cinderella story cinderella right she's up working hard yet she's the lovely one and the kind one and yet she's put down and locked up in the thing and the two ugly terrible mean terrible evil stepsisters they get whatever they want and they get to mock cinderella and yet who at the end marries the prince right the two evil stepsisters Uh -uh uh-uh cinderella these storylines that we're familiar with, the upside down values, are weaved in here into ancient texts like the Bible far before Cinderella or Disney ever came up with it. And we see here in First Samuel 1, we see Hannah praying to God. She pours out her heart. I think I have a few minutes. I, I know I'm, we're coming here to the end. I do want to focus on just one, a, a couple ideas. If you have your Bible, you can look through First Samuel 1. I'm not reading it all. I don't have time today. But the storyline is in that they are going to the tabernacle where people would go to worship God in Shiloh at that time. And she goes there and it's when she comes there that Peninnah seems it is her right to mock Hannah in ways more than she often has been doing. Hannah could have responded in like. She could have responded in anger and bitterness, lashed out, put Peninnah in her place. She doesn't do that. She humbly goes to the place or to the one who she knows can do something about it. She goes to God. And it says in verse 10 of First Samuel 1, she was deeply distressed. She prayed to the Lord. She wept bitterly. She goes to God and she pours out her heart before him. Verse 12 says, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, the priest at that time, observed her mouth and says, Hannah was speaking in her heart, but only her lips moved. You ever been that? That place of of emotion and you're just praying and you don't know what to even say. Your lips are moving, but you're in this place of deep, deep emotion. Hannah was speaking in her heart, but only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, here's what Eli thought. Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk here in the house of the Lord? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no my Lord I am a woman troubled in spirit I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I believe this little statement is more of a testimony on Eli's on Eli's blindness to what God is doing than it is to Hannah's faithfulness although it is a testimony to her as well. It shows us a sign that of not only the state of wickedness in the people of God, that Eli was used to trying, he was used to drunks being in the house of the Lord. That he was, it was such a common occurrence to him. Uh, we got another one this week. We got to kick someone out, who's and get him out of here. Oh, this Hannah's another one, and he's also so blind to how God is working in that situation. The very person who should have been uh, humbly coming alongside her is the very one accusing her as this as well. The high priest of Israel at that time—a terrible situation. And yet, when she pours out her heart, says in verse 17, then Eli answered, go in peace. The God of Israel may grant your petition that you have made before him. Verse 18, and she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Hannah's name means grace or favor, so when she says that, it's a double thing. But then the woman went her way and ate. And I love this, and her face was no longer sad. Did, Did she receive the answer to her prayer right then? She didn't. She didn't know that God was going to give her Samuel. She didn't know that God would allow that to take place. She didn't know that all this would be written. But when she left, she did what she could. She prayed her prayer to the Lord. She poured her heart. She left with her face changed her outlook and her hope different. This could be a whole message on prayer. This could be a whole passage on prayer and what it means to pray and to give yourself over to God and to allow Him to do with what He will. That is the goal. And yet here we see God doing that. And in fact, in verse 19, there's a statement here in verse 19 and 20. I just, I love this. It says, it says, the Lord remembered, verse 19. "The, The Lord remembered her. I don't know if you know, I mean, you, you read the Bible a lot of times. Brian was talking about a pet thing jumped off the page. and That was jumping off the page to me this week. And this, this epic narrative of King David, David and Goliath, and yet God, in his mercy and beauty and grace, he remembers little old Hannah. <laughs> it's not always about might, strength, power. In fact, it's more often about your heart. And that's really the the desire of today's message, the point of today's message is looking at all the reversals that take place of how God does not always look in the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And in Hannah, he chooses to bless her for it is in her beautiful prayer that, that she prays things like, in verse 1, my heart exalts in the Lord. She worships the Lord in Him alone and in His salvation. Exalts means rejoice gladly. She's praising God, rejoicing. She's leaping upward is almost what exalts means. She's jumping up and down. She's praising God. The Lord is who she is putting her heart in. She, is, she sees that He is the, the King of her heart, we sang earlier because I will rejoice in your salvation. Verse two says, there's none holy like the Lord. There's none besides you. Who was beside her all the time? Peninnah, it's constantly rubbing it in. But to God, he has no rival, no rival. Hannah's name, as we said, means favored and grace, and you can only imagine how, how um, Peninnah would have rubbed that in. Oh, look, here's the favored one who has nothing, you know. And yet now God has favored her greatly. Faith in God here and our faith has no rival. Verse 5 talks about how there were those who were full have hired themselves. But here those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. We're, we're hungry but we are now full. Jesus says I am the bread of life. Drink of this well and you will be no longer thirsty again. Eat of this bread and you will no longer be hungry again. Your soul is hungry, thirsting, searching. You're looking for rest. Find your rest in me. And I am gentle and lowly in heart, he says in Matthew 11. And I will give you rest. And verse 7 and 9 really depict a lot of the themes that we're going to read throughout Samuel over the next couple of months. Verse 7, he brings low. He brings low and he exalts. He brings low and he, brings, and he exalts. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And verse 9 says, and not by might shall man prevail. For it's not by might, it's not by power, but by the spirit, as Zechariah says. Not by might that man shall prevail. And wh- where do we see that most exemplified? The five stones, right? <laughs> David and Goliath. Not by might, strength, and arrogance, but by those who submit themselves to the power of God. And that's what we see in verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of the anointed. And if you were to look at the very end of 2 Samuel, see a song or a prayer given by David, where David almost quotes verbatim these very words, where he says to the Lord's anointed, and then he says to David and his lineage forever. That's in 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty-one. 51, for those of you who want to look at that later on. But it describes and foreshadows the coming king, the one who would unite, the one whose heart's posture would be pointed to the Lord in humble adoration of God. That's the kind of king that we're looking for. Not the Saul's, not the Goliath's, not the, the Peninnah's, no, the, the Hannah's, the Ruth's, and the David's. Those who posture their hearts in humble adoration for their king, And bow their face before him. They will be exalted. They will be honored. They will be saved. And so we come to the end. And we ask ourselves. This is a lot of maybe Old Testament history. This is a story that seems maybe. Really far removed from us today. In our modern world. And it might be hard to grasp at times. But when we come to this place. I want us to consider today. Where is your heart at? Whose heart. The King of your heart what where what what is where is your heart postured? are you in a a place of anger and shaking your fist at God? Are you in a place on your knees like Hannah bowing before him? David, the son of Jesse, in acts thirteen mentions how David, the son of Jesse, was a man after god's own heart who will do his will, a heart. Directed towards God, submissive to him. The true king is supposed to be like this. This is we as well. In the New Testament, we in the New Covenant, we come under God's value system, under his kingdom. We allow God to alter our ways and lead and guide our hearts. We are not king. He alone is king, for he is the king of kings. Does your heart exalt in the Lord? Are you praising him with all that you have? Are you living, directing, and understanding, knowing that some things in your life might seem barren, some things in your life might seem difficult and hard, some things in your life might, on the outward, seem challenging. You might even be maligned and mocked, you might even be in a situation that is feeling like persecution, but we recognize that the gospel will triumph, God will vindicate. God will build his church. He he exalts those who humble themselves to him. And he lowers the proud. So where is your heart today? Don't always look so much on the outside. Where is your heart? That's between you and God. What is he saying to you today? Are you giving your heart wholly and completely and absolutely, like we sang earlier, absolutely over to God? Is his love the thing that is defending your heart? Do you love him and does he love you in return? For he draws near to you. That is the beauty of all this. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he will exalt you. Let me close with this last verse that I want to read before I pray. Philippians chapter two. Very well familiar with this passage. Philippians chapter two. I just believe it describes perfectly the figure that is in the background to all of this is Jesus Christ. And it's in his humility that gives us the reminder of how we are to live our lives in response to posturing our heart to what God would do with us. Philippians three, I uh, sorry, Philippians two, verse three says, Do nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Father, we come before you today and we humble ourselves before the mighty name of God, the mighty name of Jesus, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, a name that is above every name. And Lord, we know that this great and mighty name is not afar and aloof from us. Lord, that you hear even our humble praise to you today, our humble prayers to you today. You hear us and that is so amazing you are majestic and on high and yet god you visit us even here below we thank you god that you care even about the youngest or the oldest among us lord you are with us we thank you for that we pray to you today knowing that we can leave this place with with joy like hannah did with her face changed with joy we God, God, we know that you love us and you care for us. I'm so grateful, Father, for these truths, for your word, and for this church. May you bless, may you guide and direct in this place. In Jesus' name we pray.